0: Good morning everyone. My name is Diddy. If we haven't met, um, I'll be reading from God's Word this morning from Judges, the book of Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 7 down to verse 31. Judges 3 verse 7 to 31. Now if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles at the back of the auditorium. Please go and grab one. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, uh, you can actually keep uh, one of those. It's our gift from Tungabi to you. Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on them, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stones, stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, "'Your majesty,' I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it. Into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the, upper, in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There, they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehad got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehad came, Shagmar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, he too saved Israel. Here ends the reading.
1: Well, well, good morning, everyone. It's it's, it's wonderful to be here. Can I encourage you, please have your books, have the Bibles open in front of you. Have Judges chapter 3 out as we continue our, our series in, in this. It's a big, heavy book, um, but um, we're praying that God will use it and, and transform us and help us to know how to live in this world. So let's pray as we come to this passage today. Heavenly Father, we we come to... The book of Judges and the book filled with just scandal and strange stories. It's filled with chaos and disorder and yet at the same time, we're going to see over and over again, it's filled with your grace and your mercy. So Father, we pray that this, this term you'll work in us to see what it is to live in a 21st century world as followers of you. Help us not to compromise, but help us to be used by you for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's it's in the unlikely that we encounter the unlikely saviour. Now, growing up at high school... You know, you grew up watching the people around you and you soon worked out, this is the way of the world that people would likely end up doing these things. You know, like as you looked at the, your friends in class, as you looked at those around you, you know those who were, you know, going to become the drug cartel. You know, they're going to sell drugs. You knew those who were going to, to work, you know, down as a dental nurse at the local dentistry. You, you know those who were going to become a farmer because I grew up in parks. They're going to become a farmer. They're going to become a welder. You know, and there's others, you go, know, they're definitely going to head off to uni and get a degree as a school teacher. They'll, they'll travel to the city to, to get that degree. It was likely going to happen. You know, it was likely going to happen that some would become doctors and brain surgeons. And you know that some of them in your class would eventually probably get a PhD in some area of their thesis that they wanted to work on. You know, there's, there's things in this world that we just think that's just the likely way things take place. It's a way in which we look at the world and we think this is likely how it's going to outcome and this is what's going to happen. And so as we do life, we just look at life and go, this is how the world works. You know, it's likely that those with power and wealth and status and reputation in the world are going to go off and do greater and bigger things. But then you might be feeling like, well, it's probably likely that I won't. Maybe you're feeling it's just likely that I'm just here in Western Sydney living in this suburb and it's just likely that this life is going to be like that. And then you look at these other people, it's likely that they'll go off to bigger and greater things and that they have meaning and happiness and joy whilst I'm where I'm at. There's a sense in which we we view the world and this is how the world works. And so this will likely happen. And you think, does God even see what I'm going through? Does God actually know the season that I'm in, that I'm stuck in. And you think, but it's just so likely for me to be where I am and likely for others to go other places. Does God really care? Does God really know? And so today, as we come to this text, we're gonna think about when when it comes to God, how does God work in this world? As we look about the likely ways in which we picture that the wealthy and the powerful, that they're likely going to have this and there's going to be likely this outcome for other people. How does God work, though, the one in this universe? How does he work in this world? How does God work in the lives of those who follow Jesus, this side of the cross? And we're going to see that God works different to the way that we often think God should work, that he often chooses the, the lowly and the weak. So we're in the book of Judges, last week we we opened up and we had a look at Judges chapter one and two, which is really just a, an introduction to the book. We saw that Judges was sort of written. It was so the judges took place. The book of Judges took place between the fall of Joshua as leader, who died, and the rise of King Saul. Probably a period of three to four hundred years. It's a time in the history where Israel had no leader and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's a sense that they've been rescued out of Egypt in a wonderful way, but yet now they're, they're not knowing what to do. But yet God said, I'm going to keep my covenant, go into the land, clear the Canaanites out, which is really not, mil- it's not that the Canaanites were a military threat. No, no, they were a spiritual cancer that would have affected the followers of Yahweh, the Lord, in how they worshipped him. And so get rid of them because they're going to influence you. But what we found last week was though that they compromised. They compromised, and when we compromise, it often feels good at first. It feels good because the Israelites, they were succeeding to begin with, but they were slightly disobeying the Word of God. We saw that compromise eventually came to this point where they completely disobeyed God. And then what we see is that often as we disobey God, we become enslaved to the idols of the world around us. They enslave us and they grab hold of us instead of the freedom that we have in Jesus. And last week, I don't know whether you remember that I had this up on the screen, this cycle. That in chapter 2 we get a hint of this cycle that's going to go over and over again. Basically, not every story you're going to pick up on every single thing, but every story is going to have this but Israel rebelled, they did evil in their own eyes. God, they came to ruin. God would set up, He would, He would give them over to a leader of a Canaanite, they'd become ruined and be oppressed. That would cause them, because God does not want his people to become comfortable with sin. So it caused them to cry out, they repented. Then God sends a judge to rescue those people. And while ever the judge is alive, guess what? They have peace and rest in the land. And then the judge dies, right? That's rest in peace. The judge is resting in peace, but Israel goes back to rebellion yet again. And we're going to see that cycle again even today. But here's the point of today's passage. Here's the point today is that God loves to rescue. God loves to save his people in their affliction and misery through unlikely ways. He loves to do it for his people who are going through misery and affliction in unlikely ways. And so he raises up a judge. But here's why this actually matters today. Here's why you need to know this. Because what happens if we don't understand this, we will miss seeing God at work in our lives. We'll miss him in the small and insignificant moments. It means you'll miss him in the moments of suffering and affliction. It means that you'll miss it and you won't be patient, but you'll want what you're going through to end straight away. It means you'll also probably miss who Jesus really is if you don't get today's passage. And it also may mean that you'll miss putting your hand up to be used by God in his kingdom. And so today we're going to encounter a couple of judges. We're going to encounter a variety of them. But here's what you need to make sure. When you think of a judge... Can you not think of the 21st century Australia, right? Think of the judge who's got the hair, got the gavel. When you think of judge, what we think of judge in Australia is the courtroom of Australia. Now, that's really not what a judge means in the book of Judges. It's more, so I'm using an extreme contrast here so you get the point. It's more like Rambo. It's more like that, you know, next slide, it's more like that military leader, Now, I'm using it as an extreme to get a contrast here, but but it's not really someone who's in a courtroom who's banging in the government, but it's more like a military leader who's politically got power and authority and he leads the people in a military way. Okay? There you go. So don't, don't miss the point of who a judge is in the book of Judges. And this first judge, right, Othniel, he gives us insight. Now, put up your hands, everyone who's heard a sermon on Samson. Put up your hands. Come on, everyone. Put up your hands if you've heard a sermon on Samson. Okay. Now, keep up your hands. Keep them up. Keep your hands up if before today you've ever heard of Othniel or a sermon on Othniel. We've only heard a couple, which is actually extremely sad because Samson is not someone you want your kids to model. In fact, we actually miss Othniel, who's probably the ideal in the scheme of judges, the ideal judge. It's the ideal cycle. It's actually the first judge is actually really the, the pinnacle of it. And yet we never talk about it. And yet we always go to Samson. See, Othniel, let's have a look. Othniel is that, the, it's sort of the, the cycle perfected. Look at verse 7, the Israelites did evil. Okay, so what happens? The anger of the Lord, he brings ruin and oppression. He raises up Aram of Narathaim, which is a king, which really means, like, it's, it's, a bit, it's, a bit, oh, it's a bit cryptic. It's like double evil from the double river. It's a Canaanite country. They, they've come. They're powerful. They're a powerful nation and tribe and, and area. So you expect it. It's likely that they'll come and take over. Then you get, you get um, verse 9, he raises up for them a deliverer called Othniel. Now, he's a likely military leader because he's got great family heritage. He comes from Caleb. Like he's, he's the pinnacle of you'd want him to lead your people. And he's probably the kind of guy that at the age of four you would go, ah, he's likely going to be someone of great significance. He's from the right tribe. He's, he's, he's got that kind of way about him. He's likely going to do it. He's a likely kind of guy. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He becomes a judge. He goes to war. He has a great victory. And so the land has 40 years of peace, right? That, that idea of 40 in the Bible, it's the fullness, you know 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days of the flood, 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness. It's got a number here that sort of makes you think this is a likely kind of guy. This is a great story. And then he dies. 40 years of peace. Now, last week I mentioned about you know, growing up and going to high school and, and being in my tech drawing class, which was between recess and lunch. It was a double period. And as a bunch of blokes, you know, the teacher would come in. We'd all, while the teacher was there, everyone was drawing and, and doing their stuff, we had the T squares out. We're doing everything correctly and in peace. But this teacher had a tendency that every double period he'd say, hey, I'm just going to go off to the office. I've just got to do a little job. I've got to do an errand. And so he'd almost be gone for the whole double period. And as soon as the teacher would leave, anarchy would cut sick. T-squares, dusters would go through fans, people would wrestle, chalk was being thrown. Like it was just chaos, chairs were moved. It was anarchy while ever the teacher wasn't there. And then the teacher would come back and it would be peace again teacher would leave anarchy would break loose and and in a way that story is a picture of our hearts that we cannot break the cycle of the oppression of our sin we can't stop it's just in us innate in us to want to do sin and so what do we expect when Othniel dies look at verse 12 the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord again it's that cycle And so what happens shouldn't surprise us. And so what we get here, we get Othniel, and then we get Ehud. Othniel is five verses, Ehud is 19, and Shamagar is one verse. And Ehud's actually sandwiched in between. It's actually going to be a contrast for us. The stories are a contrast, and at the same time, we have a humorous story that's designed to communicate a truth that sticks. See, it's it's in the unlikely that will encounter the unlikely savior. And so how does God work in our lives? How does God work in our lives as Christians? Well, God works in our unlikely misery. He works in our unlikely misery. The misery that comes left-handed, it doesn't come from where you expect. The misery that you thought wouldn't come your way. Have a look at verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, The Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. That seems okay. That seems interesting. Verse 13, getting the Amorites and the Amorites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. Now, that doesn't surprise us in 21st century Australia. You think, okay, that's expected. But actually, I think for the people of Israel, they weren't expecting this at all. They were expecting a Canaanite country. See, the Moabites aren't mentioned in the book of Judges in the beginning. The the Moabites actually aren't in the promised land. The Moabites in Numbers chapter 22, they're actually afraid of Yahweh because they've heard of what God did by rescuing Israel out of Egypt. And so in the scheme of the world, like the last place that you would think would be the Moabites who would come, that God would raise up a Moabite king to bring them to ruin so that they would turn back to him. It's unlikely See, so the Moabites are a descendant of Abraham's nephew, Lot, through his incestual relationship with his daughters. It's highly unlikely, and yet it's them. And, and, and the city of Palms is another hint that it's a little bit unlikely. You know, I grew up in parks. Um, Forbes was 20 minutes down the road. I passed it in Forbes as well for a, a little period. But in country towns, you have names. And so in sport, between the two, the two towns, was quite big rivalry. It, was, you know, it got really intense. But we had names for each other, okay? So people from Forbes, they were called swamp rats. So whenever you played them in sport, you say, we're going to play the swampies today. And if someone introduced himself, I'm a swampy, swamp rat. And then if you're from Parks, we were called the bush pigs. And so you see how, like, when someone says you're a bush pig, what does that mean to me? I'm from Parks. If you're a swamp rat, you're from Forbes. And the city of Palms is the city of Jericho. The first place that they crossed the Jordan River and God gave great victory to the people of God to show who he was. In a sense, it would have been an unlikely place. It's actually a military stronghold in the sense of where it's laid in the land. It's an oasis. It was a, great, it was a, it was a prime position to have, to have military success and position over the whole land. And of all places, it's Jericho, and they have 18 years, right? The king raises up and he gets other people, he takes it over, and they have 18 years. Now, you think high interest rates for a year are hard life. You think paying $15 for an Angus burger at Macca's these days is it's something to cry home about and whinge. But these people had 18 years of being taxed to the bone, being oppressed, having poverty probably, and living a very simple existence in this world, under, of all people, under the Moabites. See, misery, it came from an unlikely place. And to even think that God would strengthen the king of Eglon, sorry, the king of Moab, to come against it, it just seems a bit unlikely. But that's the thing. God works in that. Because, see, God's a jealous God. He's jealous for the affections and the love of his people, that he'll never allow his people to become comfortable with sin in their own lives that he has to push in and bring about so that they will turn and see their need for him. And so God is actually really kind and gracious to these people by raising up King Eglon so that the people of God would see that they're enslaved to the idols of Canaan. There's a situation that's designed to lead them and turn them back to God. And so having faced what they've faced, this unlikely misery, through that, God then sends and works through an unlikely saviour. How does God work? He actually works through an unlikely saviour. He doesn't take the situation away, but he sends a saviour in. So God loves to save those who are in affl- misery and affliction in unlikely ways. And, and, and so the track record so far, judge number one is Othniel. He's from the tribe of Caleb. It's a great, great pick. And so we've encountered a great warrior, but we get to this story and we get the left-handed Ehud. H- have a look at verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, in, in Aussie culture, I know in other cultures the left hand has certain connotations and and, and what you do with your left hand. But, but in an Aussie culture, right, we're a bit Aussie, we... we we give left-handed people a bit of a hard time, but more as a joke. You know I mean? Like sometimes, you know, us writers will pay the left-handers out because of the way they write on paper. But it's just that the culture we live in, it's Aussies. We pay each other out a little bit. But a left-handed person, it's just that's they write left-handed. They're left-handed. Some of our, you know, best sports people have been left-handers. And so when you think of a left-handed person, you don't think much of it. They're just built physically to play left-handed or to write left-handed. But I reckon, though, I don't think we want to see Ehud as someone, I don't reckon we want to see him as someone who's physically left-handed, like he's been born that way. I think the Hebrew, I reckon it seems to imply that Ehud's right hand is actually bound. It seems like it's actually restricted. In a sense, I wonder if it's, as some commentators said, it seems like he may even be paralysed in his right hand. He's got a handicap. And so he will be despised. Like in this culture of this book of Judges, remember that they were cruel to people who had disabilities, who had leprosy, who, who had handicaps. They weren't seen as the ideal person to be. And yet in a way it seems like Ehud's a bit like that. And there's humour here. Huge humour. Because he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And what does Benjamin mean? Son of the right hand and here is this guy who's from benjamin but their humor is the son of the right hand and yet he's a left-handed right but see here is like an, therefore in who he is he's, he's actually no security risk he's really no warrior when you look at him you're not going to really be too concerned about him like he's not he's not like um the rock walking in the room it's 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 someone else walks in the room you're not going to think much of him and we can tell that because King Eglon, he asks everyone to leave the room because he's a minority in that culture and he's probably despised and rejected by people. And it's even more humiliating, okay, to send him right now. He knows what he's been given by God, he's been raised up, he's begun to come a deliverer. But it's even humiliating in the sense because the people send him up to go to the king with tributes. This handicapped person that would have been a bit humiliating and unlikely. But it's also saying a point because they're sending with a tribute. It's not saying we're coming to take you over. No, no. A tribute is saying we submit to your rule, we're not going to revolt. The tribute says that we are in submission to your authority. In a sense, it's like you send this guy Ehud who's probably not the kind of warrior you want to look at. And it's a bit insulting. But obviously Ehud probably knows that, and in some sense we see that he, he's, he's made a plan. He, he creates a sword. He builds a sword. He straps it to his opposite leg um, because he's a left-handed, and he gives the tribute, right? He gives this tribute to a very, like did you notice it? It goes to explicit detail, a very fat king. He's fat. It tells you that. And so, this king is very fat. This tribute would have brought grapes, food, grain, a whole bunch more, a lot of food. And guess what? This very fat king is going to do? He's going to eat the tribute and get even fatter. There's humor here. And yet, there's a sense, isn't there, that King Eglon, in his pride, right, is no one can touch me as king, he's fat. And the king can you know, the king's, just, it, 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 he's there to make a stop for a moment. So they get the tribute and they go back. All the people, they go back and they go past the idols of Gilgal. And this unlikely warrior, he says, keep going, but he, he turns back. This unlikely warrior, when he gets to the stones, he comes back, these altars, he goes back to there. He gets through customs, right? He gets through security. He gets the pat down for the devices or any, you know, listening device. It's obvious that he's no threat. He's the unlikely saviour of Israel. And so what does a king do? He's fully comfortable. He says, come on in. You've got a message. Everyone, you better get out. See, this fat king thinks there's, there's no way this guy can do anything. And what happens? He, he, this guy, this hoodie, this this, this this the unlikely warrior, pulls out his sword from, with his left hand and he puts it into the fat king's stomach. And what happens? It goes through, the fat just rolls over, and the king dies. And his intestines, right, the, sometimes they soften it, but dung came out. Like it's, it's there, that's how big and fat, all that food. And there's just incredible details. you notice the amount of details it goes to give us the humiliating scene? It's a humiliating scene because poo comes out. It's, it's a scene for the king and then it's humiliating for his subjects, right? Because his subjects, like every minute that they're waiting is a minute that he escapes, right? Because they smell. It's like, oh, we better not go in there. You know, like I've got three boys. I walk through the front door. We've got four toilets. Sometimes I walk through the front door. And you know, it's that time. And so I let them go for half an hour. I just go, I'm not going anywhere near that because they're doing their business. And, they, and that's the humour. Like they think he's on the, the can, on the toilet. And so they just, we better not go in there, to a point that it's so that every minute by every minute, Ehud gets fully away. And he gets past that idol, those stones again. And he gets past and he raises the alarm. And they come back and they come back and he says, God has given us a great victory. And they go back and they remove all of them. It's a great picture. And then they have like 80 years of peace under Ehud. They pass the stones we see a God who loves to save his people in their misery and affliction through an unlikely saviour. See, there's humour here because the Moabites assumed wrong. See, it's the God of Israel who saves. I think some of the humour in this passage may be there with these stones that they go past, these stones that are possibly idols and altars. It's like they can do nothing for Ehud, sorry, for King Eglon. They can't save him. They don't speak. They don't save him. And yet the, the God of Yahweh speaks through Ehud and saves his people. Ehud kills the king. The gods do nothing. Over and over again, this story, it has a, a sense of humor and satire to it because it's used. See, Jokes and humour can be used to make a very deep point. You can have a laugh, but at the same time, it makes a very deep theological point that it shows us our desperate, desperate need for salvation. It shows us our desperate need and the hopelessness which we are stuck in the cycle of sin and that we need to be rescued from it. And it makes a point that God loves to do it. See, it's not that God's holding back until you sort your mess out. It's not that God's holding back until you have a breakthrough in your life. Or he's not holding back until you conquer this addiction. It's not that God's holding back until you get off the drugs. It's not that God's holding back and waiting to see if you can just get your your life together before he will act. It's not that God's saying, hey, I need you to put all your wrongs right before I will act. But instead, it tells us we're to cry out to the only one who saves. That it tells us that God actually comes in amidst our mess of our lives. And this unlikely saviour, Ehud, really, who's to point us to it? It points us to the unlikely saviour who is Jesus, who would come and he would live a life that we could not live who would die the death that we should have died, who would conquer the grave and and have victory over sin and death and prevent that cycle from going on and on again because he is the saviour of the world. See, he was seen to be unlikely as well. See, Ehud points us to a bigger story of our need for salvation. But see, God, he works through unlikely misery. He he works through sending the unlikely saviour. But at the same time, what's God's methods often after that? Well, God's methods are he uses unlikely people. He uses unlikely people. See, Ehud probably would have been seen as ineffective, uninspiring, the last one that you would probably choose to be on the A-team. He's probably not your naturally born leader. Othniel, though, would have been a public figure possibly, someone you know you'd probably invite to the Australia Day ceremonies or to an Anzac Day award ceremony. Ehud is the last person you would ever think to possibly lead the people of God. And yet look who Ehud was when God called him to action. Get to the first century, into the the area of Galilee and you see Jesus is born. He's a carpenter. Jesus, he, he He goes out and he calls fishermen to be his disciples. Unlikely. He he calls tax collectors, the ones who were despised in their culture, and he calls them to be his own, to to lead them and have them serve in his kingdom. The most unlikely people that the Messiah would hang out with is the ones he would hang out with. Does things in unlikely ways. And and go, go to 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 26 in your Bibles, Just go there for a minute. And we get to Paul and we, we hear a very similar story. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God, he chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ, that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for, come for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God uses unlikely people. He uses the foolish things, to shame, the wise. Now, what I just read, I reckon in our culture in Western Sydney is a little bit laughable. Really? The world doesn't value it that way. It seems foolish and insane to think like that. Actually, our social media, our feeds, our Facebook, the news, the awards, the Grammy, they they all sort of point to something very different. Let's say, this this is crazy that we would work like this. And in fact, often it's those who have wisdom and riches that humiliate the poor. But here's a warning, I think, in the humour of this story. There's a bit of a warning for those who want to humiliate, abuse and oppress the people of God. The warning is you will run the risk one day of being humiliated by God himself like King Eglon. One day you'll be humiliated by the judge, Jesus Christ. There's a warning. It's insane, isn't it, to think that God would work in our misery. It's unlikely to think that God would work through an unlikely saviour. Or that God would use unlikely people like us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But why so that we can boast? Why is it this way so we can boast in Christ? We can boast in his glory. King Ehud the judge, he says it's the glory goes to God. He has given us the victory. Because see, it's in the unlikely that we encounter the unlikely Savior. See, God loves to deliver, he loves to rescue his people who are in misery and affliction through unlikely ways. But so why does it matter though? Why does this matter for us today? Well, I think I've got three got three reasons of why it matters. And maybe one of them resonates with you. The first one is that that it matters because God is amongst us. See, maybe maybe you're here today. Maybe what you need to hear today is that God is actually at work within our dirt and our messed up situation. Maybe the situation you find yourself in right now, you actually need to hear that, no, as a follower of Jesus, God's at work in it. So that God loves to save his people. You may need to hear that. Maybe, maybe you're in your situation because, yes, yeah, the consequences of your action and your sin. Maybe you're in your situation because of other people and what they've imposed upon you. Or maybe it's just that there's something that's hit you left field medically or suffering-wise that you think, man, I'm going through misery and heartache right now. And what you need to just hear today is that God is amongst it. He gets down in our dirt and our mess. And And we need to hear that so that we will see the grace of God at work in our lives through that, through the affliction, through the misery. That you need to hear it so that you don't think that everything you go through will have no outcome. But that God is amongst the dirt, working and chasing and refining his people who he loves and who he's he's made his. As one commentator said, um, he said, whether you can, it's going to come up on the screen, whether you can comfortably put it together or not, he is a God who delights to deliver his people even in their messes and likes to make them laugh again. Now, what what I think Dale's saying here is he's saying that as those who would have read the book of Judges after this event, whether they were free or whether they were in exile or even as we read it today, in a sense, the humour is there to make us laugh once we get through the misery, to remind us that God wins. He has a purpose. And so therefore, he says, He is a God who allows weeping to endure for a night or a season, but sees that joy comes in the morning. And I think, in a sense, the New Testament often reminds us of that. It reminds us that, that in our suffering and our situation and in our pain, God is refining us in one Peter. He makes us more like his son Jesus. In Romans chapter 8 says, for, for, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 it says, and we know that in all things God is working together for the good of those who love him. See, the good there is he's making us more and more like his son Jesus Christ. See, Judges 3, it's it's, just, it's saying, hey, God gets amongst our mess. But maybe you don't need to hear that, but maybe you just need to hear that God will lift you out of your dirt. Psalm chapter 40 says, Psalm 40 says, He lifted me out of the miry clay. He placed my feet upon a rock. He gave me a new song. He gave me a firm place to stand. He gave me a song to praise Him. See, Psalm 40 pictures a God who will rescue His people from their misery and their dirt and their mess. And how does He do it? He does it through an unlikely Savior. And that unlikely Savior is Jesus Christ, the one who can break the cycle of sin and death forever. So you might be here and you have a wrong picture of who Jesus is. See, the Israelites, when Jesus turned up, they had a wrong picture. They thought they needed a Messiah and a king who would come, who would rescue them from Roman rule, who would kick them off the throne, who would give them Jerusalem back, who would give them prosperity, health, materialism, and they'd live in the land of milk and honey. And that's what they needed. And because they thought that's what they needed, they completely missed the unlikely saviour Jesus. Because it was not what they wanted. And yet, Judges tells us that the unlikely saviour is actually what we need. He's actually who we need. So you'll never see Jesus for who he really is. You'll only see him as a moral teacher or someone who brought you know, healing or someone who, who did great things or great ethics. You'll only ever see him as that if you think it's about prosperity and wealth and happiness. But see, Jesus came for something greater, to break the powers of sin and death, to conquer Satan In Revelation chapter 1, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He was the Lamb who was slain to set us free from our oppression to sin. He's the one who frees us. He's the one who can break the cycle. See, maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you need to trust in that. Maybe you need to come and cry out and go, I can't do it, but only Christ can do it. Maybe you need to see your your spiritual corruption and your need for new life in him. Or maybe you just need to hear that God uses left-handed people like us. Maybe you need to hear that. Because see, if you don't get this, you may never be used by God. Because that's the irony. The very reason we often say no is the very thing God uses to grow his kingdom. The thing we say no to because we're not equipped for that, it's unlikely we'll be used that way, is the very thing God uses to make himself known to the world, his glory. So maybe you just need to hear today, I've just got to put my hand up. I've actually got to just put my left hand up and say, God, use me. I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but I'll be used by you. So today's a great chance to do that. Put your hands up and say, use me. So you might be here today and you think, oh, I just need to go and pray about it and think about where I need to serve. Have you realized that God's actually told you today where to go and serve? We've got kids ministry. We've got mowing. We've got Christianity Explained. You know, all those things that we think, oh, that's unlikely where I'll ever serve. And so you say, I'll just go and pray about it. And that's a good thing. But actually, have you ever realized that God might be just going, I'm going to use you in that right now? You're never too old as well. You're never too old to be used by God. See, we sometimes will never risk for Jesus. We'll never take a risk. Sometimes we'll be unwilling to take any risks or step out in faith to serve him in his kingdom. And therefore, we can actually take a lesson from Ehud, who does. See, I think one of the reasons we don't take risks, or the reasons we are afraid to put our left hand up and, and, and serve Jesus, is that we fear the idols of this world. We fear them over fearing God. See, we believe the gods of social media. We believe the gods of this world, the prayer pressure, the, the, the pressure from the world around us. It says, here's who's going to likely succeed in life. It's the strong and the likely and the able who will make it in this world. The reason sometimes we don't put our hand up is because we're worried about what other people will think of us. They're more equipped. They're more trained. They're more elegant than you. And so we don't put our hand up because we're worried about self-image and the anxiety of how people may see my body type or think less of me of how I look. But remember, the ways of Jesus are not the ways of the world. It's not the way of the world. Eud would have been shamed, despised and rejected by his culture. But God used him for his glory you know church who would have expected that Jesus would use this multi-ethnic multicultural church with people from all over the world that he would use us unlikely people to be used by him for his glory that Jesus would use us left-handed people to grow and to take the gospel to the ends of the world so that we would not boast in ourselves but we would boast in him see We've just got to put up a left hand and say yes. But see, Ehud was a left-handed saviour, a left-handed saviour who was unable to break the cycle of sin and death. But there was one unlikely saviour who had nail-pierced hands. An unlikely saviour who would come, who we would just look at and think nothing of. One who would have no beauty or majesty, would have nothing to attract him to him, nothing in his appearance we would desire to be him. He was despised, he was rejected by us. He's a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and he was held in low esteem. And yet surely he took up our pain, he took up our misery, he took up our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, that's our sin, and the punishment that brought us peace was put upon him and by his wounds we are healed. See, there was one who came with nail-pierced hands who who gave up his throne, being at the right hand of God above, and he came up and gave up his heavenly palace to be born in a stable that was filled with urine and poo and animals, and yet he was born in the backwoods of some country, and he grew up to fully obey his father's will, to live the life that we could not live, so that he would be crucified on a cross. No one wanted him. He was buried, he was raised from the dead, and on the cross he says, it is finished. See, today we can have that. He's the one who we go to, the one who can break the cycle of sin and death, the one whom we can cry out to and find joy, happiness, and lasting happiness in him because of who he is. Have you cried out today for salvation through the unlikely saviour Jesus? Are you willing to put your left hand up and say, God, use me? Because it's in the unlikely that we encounter the unlikely saviour. Let's pray. Father, etch on our hearts today what you've done for us in sending your son Jesus. That as we look at someone like um, Ehud, who probably was despised and rejected, someone who we would not look up to, Father, you used him. But yet at the same time, you've used him to point us to your son Jesus in whom we find life, salvation, we find the words, it is finished, in whom we find eternal life. Father, thank you that you know us, you see what we're going through. You're not absent from it, but you're with us in it. And so, Father, help us this week to trust in you, to know this, to love you. And Lord, we pray that you'll use us for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.